Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Jonah, chapter 4. Jonah, chapter 4. We've been walking through the book of Jonah the last three weeks. This is the fourth week in the book of Jonah. And as I said earlier, we're going to finish the book today. We are actually going to do another sermon next week centered around Jonah because Jonah shows up in the New Testament in a specific way. And we're going to kind of wrap that up together before starting um, on the first week of June, uh, a series through the rest of or many of the minor prophets that are going to happen this summer. And so I'm really, really excited about that. A few weeks ago... Um, as we were on spring break, uh, my family and I, we went to, we went west. And so, um, we took the kids to Memphis and first time we'd really kind of gone to Memphis with the kids. I grew up an hour, uh, and 15 minutes north of Memphis. So I was in Memphis a lot as a kid, you know, just never really thought about taking the kids back to Memphis because I had plenty of it. But, you know, we thought it'd be a good trip and we had a great time. It was a great visit. We went to the Civil Rights Museum, which was really eye-opening and good. And it was exciting for us to be a part of that. We ate good Memphis barbecue, which is always good to do. And then we just kind of on a whim, it was kind of a overcast day, but the temperature was pretty good. We thought, well, let's go to the, let's go to the zoo. All right. And so we got together and with the family, we took off for the zoo. And so my crew was there. We were, had a good time. I don't know if you've ever been to the Memphis Zoo. Memphis Zoo is really good. It's been around for a long time. They've got some cool animals. In fact, we kind of marveled at the fact that over the course of the day, we got to see all of my family's favorite animals. Now, I don't know if you have favorite animals, like things that you'd like to see, but like my kids all have an animal that's kind of their favorite and we kind of, the Memphis Zoo has them all. So for instance, Ava's favorite animal is a panda bear, right? And so she loves pandas and uh, Memphis Zoo has uh, two pandas. One uh, made a face at her literally when she came and watched that it was curled up in a ball. Ava got to the glass. It immediately went into a pose with a panda smile and locked in that position for five minutes until Ava walked away and then it went back into a ball. And so we got to see um, a panda. Now, Maddie's favorite animal at the moment is a sloth. I don't know. I don't know where the sloth kind of infatuation has come from, but it's a big deal with eight, nine, ten year old girls. They love sloths. And so Memphis who had a, a sloth. Luke is a polar bear guy. That's his his polar bears, you know, because we see him a lot here in uh, Tennessee. And so we really excited about that. And then Eli's a wolf guy. He likes wolves. And so they had gray wolves in kind of a new area that they had with grizzly bears and some other stuff. That was pretty cool. And they even have my favorite animal, which um, they don't have here at the Nashville Zoo, which are lions. And I have always loved lions, mainly because when I was growing up, any book I read that had an alphabet book with animals in it, I always looked for the L because my name is Lyle Larson. And so there always was a lion. That was before Llama Llama Red Pajama and all that got popular. And so nobody thought of that. So it was lions. I just love the majestic nature of them. Big Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis fan. And Aslan is there. And so we got to see all of these animals. And it's fascinating to watch them. We had lots of fun watching the animals. But one of the things that I now do at zoos, because I'm old and boring, is that I actually read the things about the animals at the zoo. You know, I realize, like, when you go to museums, you get older, you actually read it. You, like, read the stuff. And I actually read the stuff about the animals. And perhaps the most interesting, or one of the most interesting animals there, I read a little something about, is not one that you would normally think of. Like, nobody goes to a zoo to see this particular animal. But it is a fascinating animal. I got a picture of it real quick right here. 
Now, I'm going to guess that if I ask you your favorite animal, nobody in this place would say roaches. But they are fascinating. They have unbelievable survival skills. First of all, you can't starve roaches because they can literally eat almost anything. They can eat human food. They really like starches, sugars, and so leave those out if you'd like to breed some roaches. Um, But they can also eat paper. They can eat cloth. They can eat soap. They can eat wood, glue, hair, and poop. So you can't starve them. They're going to find something to eat. You think, well, good, I'll just drown them. And, you know, like, you know, the, the thing you pick them up, throw them in the toilet and flush, right? Well, they can hold their breath for 40 minutes underwater. So that's not good. So you can't kill them that way. Um, well, I just cut their head off. Well, they can live for a week with their head cut off. So I, don't, I don't know who tried that experiment. Like, that's, let's get them all in there and see how long. And, wow, they're still going, right? And think, well, we'll just blast them. This is, like, I've heard this before, and I was like, ha that's funny because they really are survived. But truly, they can handle massive amounts of radioactivity. And when Hiroshima was bombed with the atomic bomb, roaches survived the explosion and lived there. Now, here's the thing. If people see roaches in their house, if you go home this afternoon and you go get ready for lunch and while you're preparing your lunch on your counter, a trail of roaches come by. Because, you know, they live in colonies. So if you see one, there's multiple. If you see a trail of roaches on your counter, what's your reaction going to be? You're going to be excited about that, right? Like, awesome, glad they're here. No, you're going to want to get rid of them. Well, I read a story this week about a guy named Stephen Tran, who is from Westminster, California. This is a few years ago. That in his apartment, he had a small little apartment in California, expensive little apartment. He had a roach infestation. Isn't that just a fun word to think about? Roach infestation. And he decided he was going to get rid of the roaches. And so he tried everything he could try. And he couldn't figure out any way to do it. And he was at the store one day. And he saw something that claimed to be a bug bomb that would get rid of roaches. I don't know if you've ever used these where you go and you put them in your house. And you pull it and it fumigates and goes everywhere. And it gets rid of the roaches, supposedly. He looked at it and it said that you could use one or two in your house and it would be sufficient for the roaches. And he thought if one or two would be good, so would more than that. And so he didn't get one or two or five or ten or fifteen or twenty. He set off twenty-five bug bombs in his apartment. There are two things he did not take into consideration when he did that. One is, um, apparently these things are flammable, like the stuff that comes out of them are flammable. And two, he had a pilot light lit in his apartment. And so he set the 25 bombs, walked away, and it blew up his apartment. $10,000 worth of damage. You think, where in the world are we going? We're going somewhere, all right? Now think about this, $10,000 worth of damage, and they interviewed him afterwards on the local newspaper to ask some questions about why this happened. And his words were, 
I was so angry, I just wanted to kill them all and kill them dead like for good. And I thought the longer I wanted them gone, the more bombs I needed. And when I got to 25, I thought that ought to keep them away for a long time. So then the newspaper columnist asked the question that we would all be thinking, did it work? To which he said, three days later, I saw them crawling among the rubble of my apartment. It didn't work. So here's my question, all right? Have you ever done something in the midst of being angry that is irrational when you look back upon it? Like, I'm sure that Stephen Tram today doesn't look back on that and think, well, that was a great decision. Like, the 25... Like, I really, I've really nailed it there, right? Anybody here ever done something irrational because of anger in your life? Maybe you're angry at someone. Maybe you're angry about something. Maybe you're angry um, with some situation. And because of that, you respond in a way that is more than it needs to be. I grew up in uh, Dyersburg, Tennessee. Y'all know this. Y'all have heard, if you've been around, you know that. I grew up in the northwest corner of Tennessee. And we were famous in Dyer County for one thing, really, um, there for a while. We were um, Geraldo Rivera's last story on 2020. Because we had a sheriff in town that took extreme measures to do things that shouldn't take extreme measures. And one of the stories they told is he used to take a shotgun and shoot flies off his ceiling. That doesn't seem necessary, Right? Because of irrational anger. As we finish Jonah today, we're going to see someone who is irrationally angry and reacts in a way that seems ridiculous in retrospect. Jonah chapter 4. As we get there, let's remind ourselves of what the whole story of Jonah is. We can do it quickly, right? Jonah was called by God to go to the Ninevites. These were the terrible people, people that were horrible to their neighbors, horrible to those that they were enemies. They would skin them. They would put their skins over their wall. They would put them on flags. They would drape them on the walkway to their um, to their city so people wouldn't come in. And God says, I need you to go to Nineveh. Tell them that they're going to be destroyed. And Jonah says, no, runs the other way, ends up in a boat on a boat going as far away as he can get. And as he goes there, God sends a storm. Storm goes crazy. The people are throwing stuff overboard. They're all like, pray to everybody's God. Let's figure out what's going on. Jonah's asleep in the bottom. The captain of the boat comes and says, hey, what's going on? We need something out as it could be. And he goes, well, God's probably mad at me. Well, why don't you pray to your God? And Jonah says, no, I'm not going to do that. He goes up to the top. They say, don't you just pray to your God? He goes, no, you probably just need to throw me overboard. They throw him overboard. It says God appoints a fish, swallows him. Jonah's there three days before he cries out to the Lord. Cries out, fish spits him out. Jonah walks back to the town, says to them, 40 days from now you're going to be destroyed. That's his entire message that we have recorded in Scripture. And they all repent. And God relents. And chapter 4 starts with what we would expect to be the prophet of God being amazed by the mercy and compassion of a great God. Instead, what we get is a prophet who is irrationally angry with God. Chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? He's playing the game of I told you so, God. 
Like, I didn't want to go, God. Now, here's why. I told you. Didn't want to happen. Jonah was greatly displeased, became furious. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my country? Remember when we were back in my country when you said to go to Nineveh? And I was like, no, I'm not going to go to Nineveh. And you're like, no, go to Nineveh. And I was like, but God, I'm afraid. You know know what's going to happen. Like, you're going to forgive them, and I just can't handle that. You remember that? He goes on to say this in the next verse. That's why I left. God, don't forget, that's why I left and went to Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And God responds to Jonah and says, are you serious, Jonah? Like, are you serious? Like, is... Do you have any right to be angry? Well, we find out from this particular passage of Scripture, what these four verses in Jonah tells us is that Jonah has a disease. And he has a disease that a lot of people have. A lot of us in this room may have it. And there are a couple of symptoms of the disease we see right at the very beginning of this chapter. And that is that Jonah is angry and he is in despair. The words here in the original language make it sound that he is, as my grandfather used to say, spitting mad. Like he is on fire mad about what's happening. He doesn't have any explanation to fit. Nothing's going to make him feel good about this. He is fired up mad about it. That reveals there's something wrong with his heart. He's not just mad. He's so mad he is in complete despair. He says, God, take my life. Now, what he means there is, God, I'm not going to take my life because I know according to the law, and Jonah's still trying to live by the law, that I'm not supposed to take my own life. But you could take my life for me, God. You could end this right now because if you're going to save those people, I can't sit around and watch. He's angry. He's in despair. And it reveals the essence of his heart. There are two questions that I want us to think about just for a moment before we kind of move past the symptoms to the illness that's in his life. And the first one is this. What makes you angry? What gets you angry? What keeps you angry? What makes you stay that way? What makes you stew? What makes you get mad? What makes you flare up? What makes you lash out? What makes you say stuff that you regret? What gets you angry? Because what you get angry about reveals what you're passionate about. You don't get angry about stuff you don't care about. Or if you do, there are other issues going on in your life. What gets you mad? Why do you get mad about it? Why are you so upset about it? What is it in your life that makes you angry? The second question is, what makes you despair? What gets you really sad, really upset, genuinely despondent, really down? What is it in your life that if it's taken away or doesn't go your way or doesn't happen like you want it to do, what is it that makes you despair? Because what makes us angry, what makes us despair are the things in our lives that we care most about. And the essence of the question that comes in the book of Jonah chapter 4 is, what in life do you really care about? What in life really moves you? What in life is your passion? What in life gets you mad? What gets you despairing? What gets you despondent? What gets you upset? What keeps you that way? Why do you do that? Again, think about the story. The entire first three chapters. In fact, if the story of Jonah ended at the end of chapter 3, it would be this hopeful celebration of the graciousness and compassion of our God. But then you get to chapter 4, and you're like, what's going on with Jonah? 
And I think there are two things that are really happening with Jonah. The anger and the despair are symptoms of deeper issues. The two things that are going on with Jonah, first of all, is we see that he is an idolater. That's a big word. That's a church word. So let's kind of break that down for a minute. What that means there is he has put something in his life above his relationship with the Lord and what the Lord has done in calling his life. If you were here a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Jonah chapter 2, I mentioned to you that Jonah 2 verse 8 is the center of the entire book, that there are an equal number of verses before and after it. It is the middle of it. And Jonah 2 8 says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And what I think you have in chapter 4 of the book of Jonah is Jonah living out his own proclamation from Jonah chapter 2. That because he has put something on a level higher than God, he has an idol in his life that he is not experiencing the grace that God wants to give to him. So what does idolatry look like? Well, there's really three kind of tests that we see in Jonah's life that's true for ours as well. First of all, when you build your identity on something other than what God says of you. Jonah's identity, we talked about this the first week, was built on the fact that he was a prophet who protected the people of God, the sanctity of God's people, the walls of God's people, that he kept them holy, he kept them together, he kept them sheltered, he kept them inside. And he was the prophet that had protected them in one of their deepest needs. And because of that, his worth was found in being the God who protected his own nation. And God was calling him through Speaking to Nineveh to reach outside of his nation to people who were his enemies. He had based his entire life on being one kind of person. And God says, now I need you to do something else. Where do you find your worth in life? Do you say you have worth because you're a good mother or a good athlete or a great student or a successful businessman? Or you're just a good person or you have lots of friends? Because anytime we put our identity in something other than the way God views us or what he says about us, we are putting it into something that will fail us. Idolatry is building your identity on something other than God's view of it. It's also desiring something more than God. And what Jonah wanted more than anything was the prosperity of his nation and the destruction of his enemies. He said, God, you promised that you'll take care of us. Well, the way you take care of us is you destroy them. But the third one's the big one here. And I think it's the one that we have to be most careful of. Idolatry in this case is desiring the God you want, not the God that is. Jonah wanted God that would protect him and destroy the Ninevites. He did not want a God that would go after them with love and compassion. He had a view of who God was and who God loves and how God acted. And when God, who is completely outside of our ability to control, you realize that, right? Decides to act in a way that is different than Jonah expects, Jonah gets mad about it. Now here's the thing. Jonah knew who God claimed he was and he still got mad when God acted like God said he would act. In fact, when he quotes here, Jonah has great theology in these verses. 
He is well learned in the Bible, in the scriptures, and what is written and what is taught. I mean, he talks about the fact that I knew, he says there in verse 2, I knew God. I knew. Like that word means that I knew to the core of my being that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sin to disaster. God, I knew that. And he says that in a negative way. God, I didn't want to go there because I knew who you were. And what he says is, I want you to be a God that I want, not the God you are. And there are many times in our lives, if we're not careful, we'll say, God, this is a moment when I expect you to act in this way. And I want you to act like that. And I want you to provide this. And I want you to give me this. And I want you to punish them. And I want you. And anytime we begin to worship the God we want instead of the God who is, we are committing idolatry. It's interesting because where he quotes from, it's first this, this idea of compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster comes from Exodus chapter 34, and it's a quote of God himself. I don't know if you remember what was going on in Exodus chapter 34. Moses has taken the Israelites out of the prom, out of a... Egypt going to the promised land. They're gathered. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. He meets with God. He gets the Ten Commandments. He gets the law. He comes down from the mountain, right? And what's happening at the bottom of the mountain? What's happening? The party, right? What are they doing? They're worshiping a cow, right? So here's what's going to happen here. They come down. They're worshiping the golden cow. If you remember, it's the worst, one of the worst excuses in the history of life. They say what happened is we all threw our gold into this fire and a cow jumped out and we decided we better worship him. Moses gets mad, breaks the tablets, storms back to God and says, God, what in the world are you doing? God, like, <laughs> like these people, God, they're ridiculous. It's not the last time Moses will say to God, what are you doing to me, God, making me walk with these people through this? And in the midst of that, God reveals himself. He passes by Moses and he says, I am compassionate, slow to anger. I will not punish unworthily. I will do things in my way. Slow to anger. I'm abounding in faithful love. And I will relent from sending disaster when people turn back to me. Jonah's first problem is that he is an idolater. He wants a God that he wants, not the one that is. The second problem he has is that Jonah is ignorant. And I don't mean that in a way of degrading him as a person. What I mean there is he forgets the grace that has been extended to him. When you think about the book of Jonah... The one who received grace in this instance the most, perhaps, is Jonah. He's the one that ran from God. He's the one that got into the boat. He's the one that God sent a storm to get him back. He's the one that, when he got thrown overboard, says God appointed a fish to swallow him. He's the one that God sustained in the belly of the fish for three days. He's the one that, when he repented, God spit him back out onto dry land. None of that did he deserve. None of that did he come to the place. In fact, what we see in Scripture is he would not even repent to the Lord, and God was still pursuing, God was still chasing, God was still after him, God was still 
providing. God was still protecting. God was still loving in the midst of him being completely reluctant as someone who knew better, that knew the calling of God, knew what God was asking him to do. He still refused to do it and he receives grace upon grace upon mercy. And when he gets to the end of it, he's still mad about the grace God extends to someone else. Jonah does not see himself in the same category of sinner as the people in Nineveh. And God's point to him is there is no level of sinner when you are outside of God. When you are outside of God, not doing what God has called you to do at all, you are on the same level as someone who is in complete rebellion to the Lord. In fact, Jonah's sin is the first sin because the first sin was Adam and Eve saying, God, you told me to do that. We're not going to do that. We're going to rebel. What it really comes down to is Jonah thinks he just needs a little bit of grace and those people over there needed too much. It makes me think of a story in the New Testament where Jesus is at the home of Simon the Pharisee and he's eating and Simon doesn't do the proper things for Jesus and this woman comes in and washes his feet with her hair, tears. A prophet, I mean the prophet, the Pharisee gets mad and says if he knew who this woman was... He would not let her do that. He cannot be a prophet. He doesn't know this woman. And Jesus looks at him and tells a story, a parable. Many of you probably remember. It's a parable of a guy who owed an amazing amount of money that he could not repay. And the master says, it's forgiven. And then immediately, that man who has his debt forgiven goes out and has someone thrown in prison that owes him a measly sum. Jesus says the point of the story is those who have been forgiven much forgive much and understand it. Those that have been forgiven little forgive little. Jonah felt like he was worthy of a lot of things because he didn't need much forgiveness. And the point that he hears from God is that we are all people in need of complete grace from our Lord. Now, you take that to a broader scale, and sometimes Jonah's used to talk about this, and we really haven't talked about it, but I want to for a moment. When you talk that to a cultural scale, what you end up with is spiritual racism. Because at the essence of what is happening here, Jonah says, God, your people deserve grace. Those people don't. And any time you find yourself in a place where you think your group, whoever that may be, your church, your friends, your group of people that act like you, that follow the rules you do, that follow the strict rules that happen in Christian life, those people that do certain things, you think we've earned some amount of salvation and they haven't. Anytime you do that, you're in a place of spiritual racism. Anytime you think we deserve more from God because of who we are, where we come from, what we've done, how much I've given, how many Sunday school classes I've taught, how much money I've given to the church, how many times I've been there. Like, God doesn't owe us anything. And anytime you begin to think that way, you slip into this place of where Jonah is. That's not the end of the story. We're just four verses in. Verse 5. Listen to this. So he yells at God. It's just crazy to me. He yells at God and God says, do you have any right to be angry? Verse 5. So Jonah left the city, found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. What did Jonah do? He's like a kid that runs off and pouts to see if they'll change their mind. 
right? Goes and builds a shelter and sits there and says, I'm just going to sit here and wait. See if God fulfills his promise to destroy them. Speaking of grace and mercy, God doesn't let him just sit there by himself. Verse 6, then the Lord appointed a plant. And it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He says, it's better for me to die than to live. Second time he's made that statement. And God asked Jonah, are you serious, Jonah? Is it okay for you to be angry about the plant? And I don't know why, but when I, when I read the rest of Jonah, I don't necessarily do this. But when I read this, I think of Jonah as a good old southern boy, all right? And I just look at him going, dag, numbing. yes, it's right. Yes, I'm mad. It's ridiculous, God. You, yes, I'm mad about this. I have every right to be mad. I'm mad enough. I can die. I'm spitting mad, God. Like, what are you doing to me? Verse 10. So the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over. It did not grow. It appeared in a night and it perished in a night. It was short term. You didn't have anything to do with it. But you get mad at me because I care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their lefts as well as many animals. And that's it. That's the end of the book. What's interesting in that last moment, he looks at Jonah and he says, Jonah, you are a prophet of mine that is supposed to give my message of grace and compassion. You said that's who I am. And you are more concerned about a plant that was here for a day than you are about the 120,000 kids that are in that city. Because most scholars think that don't know their left hand from their right. That means young kids. This would have been a big time city. And he says there are 120,000 kids in that city. Not to mention adults, teenagers, those that are older. And you don't care a single thing about them. How can you look at the massive destruction of life of sinful people? Yes, people that are not walking according to me. Yes, but people who were just like you. Made in my image, Jonah. People that I love. People that I care about. People that are just mistaken mistaken in the way they walk and have lived their lives in sin and ought to have the opportunity to come to a place to accept what I'm offering them in forgiveness. And I have no idea what that last statement's about there, about the animals. But his point is, you don't care about anything, Jonah, but yourself and your people. So how does Jonah end? What did Jonah do? I mean, there is no next verse. This is it. That's the end. It ends in a cliffhanger and it ends with a question because the book is a question for people like you and me. People that come to church on Sunday mornings. It is a question for us. Do we care? Do we care more for the people that are perishing outside of these doors than the stuff that we have in our lives? Stuff is temporary. Stuff is going to go one day and be gone the next. And Do we care more about that than we do about the eternal souls of people? What do you care about? What gets you upset? And the tears you've shed within the last year, what were they about? How many of those tears were about people that were dying and going to hell? 
Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 9 that he is in anguish every day over those that did not come to know Jesus. For Jonah, the Ninevites were not people. They were a concept. They were a big enemy city. But God points out that they are 120,000 children. They are individuals. And we think about that today. There are 2.2 billion individuals in our world who have yet to be warned about Jesus. Individuals just like you, just like me, that have been made in the image of God, who experience pain and suffering and hunger and fear, who love their children, who are building their families, who knows what it feels like to be hopeless and alone, and for whom, without the gospel of Jesus Christ getting to them, the eternal torture of hell is every bit a tragedy for them as it would be for you and me. A great missionary named Adoram Judson said in 1831, But surely if any sin will lie with crushing weight on the trembling, shrinking soul when grim death draws near, it is the sin of turning a deaf ear to the plaintive cry of ten millions of immortal beings who day and night cry out, Come and save us, for we are sinking into hell. How can we not care? How can we not Weep. No, when I think about my life and the things that I'm passionate about, I mean, there are so many things in my life that I am passionate about that do not matter at all. At all. And there are so many things in life that matter completely. I don't care about much at all. Throughout the book of Jonah, from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 4, there is a word used again and again. It's a literary device. John is a great literary piece. It's a literary device that shows us the greatness of what the call is. In chapter 1, verse 2, he calls Nineveh the great city. He hurls a great wind with a great tempest on the sea. The men were greatly afraid. The men feared the Lord greatly. Verse 17, there was a great fish. Chapter 3, verse 2, Nineveh the great city. Chapter 3, verse 3, Nineveh was a great, great city. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. Chapter 4, verse 1, Jonah was greatly angry. Verse 6, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Greatly glad. In chapter 4, verse 11, God says that great city of more than 120,000. The whole point is to show you the greatness of God's mission. Nineveh's wickedness is great. God's grace is greater. Jonah's hatred of the Ninevites is great. God's compassion for them is greater. And so my question to you today literally is this. How are you doing? How have you responded to your call to the nations? You see, we'll say, well, Jonah, Jonah had that call at the beginning. I haven't had that call. I haven't had God come to me and say, hey, I need you to go. But here's the reality. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and believe in him and what he has done for you, you have the same call on your life. Because when he was leaving the earth, he gave a call to all believers. And he said, as you go, baptize, teach, show people the way, tell them about who I am in every place you go. There are... Three places where it records Jesus' final words to disciples. And they're a little different in each place, but every one of them has the exact same force. Go out into the world and tell people who I am because they are lost without me. 
In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Teaching them, baptizing them, all that I have done. Teaching them to obey it. And although I am with you even to the ends of the earth. Every one of us in this room who are followers of Jesus Christ have been told it is our responsibility and our task and our call to go. And when we choose not to do that, we are like Jonah fleeing to Joppa and Tarshish. So how are you responding? And we talk about three ways. Every time we do a sermon like this, we talk about three ways that you can respond. Pray, give, go. The most important of those ways is to pray. God waits on the prayers of his people to move in the world. And I don't understand why he does. I don't understand what's there behind it. But I know what scripture teaches me. And scripture teaches that God waits on the prayers of his people to move. How's your prayer life for the lost in your city, in your neighborhood, in this country, and around the world? There are missionaries that are our representatives all over the world right now that are serving us by proclaiming the gospel to those in need. I was reminded of this in a strange place the other day. I was at um, field day for my kids. Uh, Madison Creek Elementary field day was last Friday. They always wait till it's 145 degrees outside to do it. And so it was blazing hot. And so at one point I was going from one place to another and I walked through the building because why would I go around the building? And so I walked through the buildings. I'm walking through the building. It's always an interesting because there's nobody in the building because they're all outside doing field day. As I'm walking the halls, there's somebody in front of me about, you know, halfway down the hall and I can read their backpack and it says IMB. Now that's International Mission Board. I recognize the logo immediately and I'm like, cool, that's somebody that knows IMB. So I just yell down the hallway, hey, love the backpack. They stop, turn around, and um, it's this it's this young lady, and I say young lady. She's I think she's got three kids, and two of them are in the school. But you have to realize we're the old parents at Madison Creek now, and so she looked like she was twelve to me, you know. And so she turns around, she starts to walk back towards us, and I'm like towards me. She goes, "Hey," she goes, "Cool." And I happen to be wearing uh, a polo that Nam has because uh, North American Mission Board because they gave it to me free, and so I wear it because it's free. And so I was wearing it, and she was like, "Are you with Nam?" I said, "No, I'm a pastor at a local church." I said, "Are you with IMB?" She said, "We're actually." right now in the process of getting clearance to go to Southeast Asia to a country that's protected. And so I had a 10-minute conversation in the hallway during field day with this young mother, three kids, young kids. She and her husband, they've been approved, church approval. They're in the midst of medical approval and they're getting ready to move their entire family to Southeast Asia. Over the last several months, Jeff's talked a lot about the Kephart's. Family he knows well that have done the same thing, taken their family and moved there. And listen, I can't understand the sacrifice those families have given to go. I can't experience that on my own here. But what I can do is pray for them. There are missionaries out there, literally thousands of them like that family, that you may not know their name, but God knows them exactly, and you pray. second thing you do is you give. Man, you give. We're about to have, in just a minute, we're going to have a day of extravagant giving. And it goes towards mission efforts here. But I'm just going to tell you, we are giving here to go and support people that are doing the work every day. 
So we go to Denver, Colorado, to Stapleton, Colorado, and we're the Chris Phillips. We're out there, and he's pastoring Journey Point Church. He is on the ground every day ministering in a community that desperately is in need of hearing the gospel. I don't know whether you realize this or not, and this isn't a political statement at all, but Denver, Colorado is a place that is moving farther and farther away from the gospel faster than anywhere else in the world. Just in like two, three weeks ago, Denver became the first place in America to approve the sale of hallucinogenic mushrooms. Like that even that ain't on our radar. Chris Phillips is planted there, already has had multiple baptism services. I know from his feet, he's got another one planted in two weeks with multiple people being baptized. The principal of the school where they're meeting has been baptized. Some teachers have been coming to the church. They are making an impact in a community that is desperately in need. And when you give in a few minutes through our day of extravagant giving, you're going to help a team go to Stapleton, Colorado, and do sports camp. And I am almost assured that that week we'll be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with some kids who have never heard it before. In a few minutes, you're going to have the opportunity to give to Day of Extravagant Giving. And part of that money is going to support us going to Porto Seguro, Brazil, where we've been going for over a decade now. A place that was considered one of the worst places in Brazil because it's right on the coast. It was the spring break town. It was the Panama City, Florida town where all the kids went. They got these huge nightclubs up and down the strip. And we go into a place that had very few churches and over 10 12, 13 years, we have built a presence in that community where churches are reaching out and revival is taking place. And we get to be a part of that because of the opportunities God gives us to be a part. Part of your giving today is going to go towards our camps for our kids and for our youth. And we know there is no better way for kids to hear the gospel than an intensive time of a week separated from everything else in their life where they hear about Jesus every day. Are you doing your part? Are you praying? Are you giving? And then the last thing, are you going? It's never been easier in the history of the world, and I'm I'm not saying that lightly because it's true, for us to go on mission with the Lord somewhere outside of our comfort zone. It's never been easier. I'm not saying that he calls every single one of us to go overseas or to go to Denver, but it's never been easier to do so. My question is, how are you responding? And I believe that just as Jonah had the call on his life to go to Nineveh, you have the call on your life to go. As a church, we believe that every year we should be going to those four areas that Acts 1-8 talks about, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And every year we try to take people there. Your giving helps that, your prayers help that, and your going help that. And it's a small part of what we can do, but it is a part of fulfilling the call on our lives. So how are you doing? Let's pray together.